0: It's a love that makes me see it's your word that comforts me by your blood. We have been set free. On behalf of Calvary Chapel Reading, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our senior pastor Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study, designed to help us grow in the Word. Turn, if you will, to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, as the children are dismissed to children's ministry. Romans chapter 8. We're going to be looking this morning at verses 35 through 39. You'll follow along now. Romans chapter 8, verses 35 through 39, beginning in verse 35, we read, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword?" As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else, and all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. May the Lord bless this reading of his word. You may be seated. I had planned on being in this passage of Scripture the first Sunday in January. Uh, I did not plan on being sick for a couple of weeks. But there are a lot of things uh, this past year and up to this point in the new year that I didn't plan on. (laughs) And who knows what we're in for In this coming year. And to say that there's a lot of uncertainty is an absolute understatement. I mean, we are living in a pagan culture. This is not a Christian nation, it's a nation that was founded upon Christian principles, but we are living in a pagan culture a culture that has suppressed and rejected the truth about God for a lie, a culture that worships and serves the creature instead of the creator. And so as Paul said in Romans 1, God has given them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to dishonorable passions, speaking of lesbianism and homosexuality, and to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And a debased mind is one that is useless, one that is worthless, One that is deceived. It speaks of a mind that is incapable of functioning properly with regard to right and wrong. And that is why, as Isaiah said, they call evil good and good evil. Put darkness for light and light for darkness. And Paul continues there in Romans 1. They're filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. That's the culture we live in. It is pagan to the very core. I mean, what we are seeing in our nation is a direct result and the devastating cost of rejecting God. And make no mistake about it, our nation is headed toward destruction. Utter ruin. And unless there is repentance, a a turning to God while there is still time, our nation is going to self-destruct. It's going to totally collapse under the weight of the judgment of Almighty God. And as I survey the landscape, it seems quite apparent that the church, and I'm speaking of the true church. The true church in this country is heading into a time of of great trial and and difficulty, perhaps suffering and persecution. I mean, maybe it won't happen this year. Perhaps it's a year or or two or even a few years away, but it's coming. Loved ones, it's coming. read an article this morning, uh, David Horowitz. Uh, is warning that Democrats are trying to criminalize the First Amendment rights of Americans as the nation is in the initial stages to becoming a fascist state. Horowitz, a prominent Jewish conservative, warned that Christians are set to see increasing persecution as the Democrats take control of Washington. Horowitz said the Democratic Party has embraced an anti-Christian agenda that was vigorously implemented by Barack Obama, the most anti-Christian, most anti-religious president in history. The problem outside the persecution of any group is bad is this country was founded on Christian principles, Horowitz noted. And he said that the values we cherish began with America's Christian settlers who themselves were fleeing persecution in Europe for their beliefs. And he argues this is the key reason for the First Amendment enshrined freedom of speech and, and conscience as a bulwark to protect religious freedom and why those freedoms are under systematic assault by the Democratic Party today. We're on the threshold of having the most anti-God, anti-Christian administration in the history of the United States. So make no mistake about it, persecution is on its way. And that's why our hope must not be in this coming year, but rather in the one who is coming back. As Elizabeth Elliott said, we must fix our eyes on the only one who knows what the year is to hold. And that's exactly right. We must fix our eyes on the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. We're to fix our eyes on the sovereign King of the universe, the God who set His love on us in eternity past, the God who saved us in time, the God who made us His own, adopted us into His family, the God who promises to never leave us or forsake us, the God who promises to provide our every need. The God who is working all things for our good and his glory, the God who is going to take us to be with him in heaven, the God who is one day going to return in great power and glory and make all things right. I mean, in the midst of all the uncertainty, the chaos, the, the evil and the wickedness around us, I and mean, we can rest assured our lives are in his hands, and absolutely nothing or no one will ever be able to separate us from His love. And it's good, <clears throat> and it is very important for us to be constantly reminded of this. And the Apostle Peter knew it was uh, vitally important to keep reminding believers of the truth, and that's why he said in Second Peter 1, I think it right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder." We need to be constantly reminded of this glorious truth. I mean, there's, there's nothing better to be reminded of than the glorious truth that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So let's set the context for our passage. The theme of Romans chapter 8 is the security of the believer the absolute certainty of the final perseverance of the saints and of the ultimate, complete and entire salvation of every single one who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that eternal security is true because of the ongoing intercessory work of the Holy Spirit on our behalf. That's Romans chapter 8. And in the final verses of Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 39, the Apostle Paul brings his teaching on the believer's security in Christ to a close with a series of questions and answers. The first question is in verse 31. Since God is for us, who can be against us? Well, The obvious answer is no one can be against us because God is for us. And God is the greatest force of all. The next one's in verse 32. He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Answer, God will certainly give the lesser gifts because He has already given the greatest gift of all in Jesus Christ. Verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Well, no one can bring any legitimate charge that will stick because God has justified His elect in the highest court of heaven. Verse 34, who is to condemn? Well, no one can condemn because Christ Jesus died, was raised from the dead, has ascended into heaven, is seated at the right hand of the Father, and is even now interceding for us. And Paul's point is simply that nothing can remove us from salvation or cause us not to persevere. Our salvation is secure because God is for us. Therefore, nothing can prevail against us to bring about the loss of our salvation. But someone might ask, well, what if some circumstance so affects us? that it causes us to be separated from Christ's love. What about that? Well, this is what Paul deals with in the fifth and final question. Look at verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who, or better, what, the Greek word can be translated uh, either way, And the fact that Paul speaks only of things and not people in verses 35 to 37 makes clear that he is now referring to things impersonal. So the word what makes better sense. So what then, Paul asks, shall separate us from the love of Christ? And the love of Christ does not refer to the believer's love for Christ, but rather to Christ's love for the believer. You say, well, how do we know that? Context. Context. Verse 37 speaks of Him who loved us. Verse 39 speaks of the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And these verses indicate to us then the primary issue here is Christ's love for us. God's love for us. And though it certainly brings to mind our love for Him, but it's speaking of Jesus, God's love for us. And so the question is, is there anything that can separate us from His love? Is there any circumstance or experience that that can alter it? Is there any person or being that can cause Jesus to withdraw His love and to turn His back on the believer? Well, the answer to that could come from John chapter 13, verse 1, where John said this, Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. The end. He loved them to the end. And the word end means perfection or completeness. You know, fully, utterly, to the end. It signifies that Jesus loves His own with the fullest measure of love. He loves His own without variation and without end. His love is eternal. He loves infinitely both in capacity and in time. And so it could be translated, He loved them to perfection. God loves His own who are in the world to to the complete extent of His divine capability of loving. And who can begin to plumb the depths of that? He could not love them any better. He could not love them more wisely. He could not love them more intensely. It's not possible. Whatever the perfection of love may be, that's the love that Jesus has for His own. There's no love in all the world like the love of Jesus for those who belong to Him. The reason God saved us is because He loved us. The reason God keeps us is because He loves us. It is the love that God has for us that binds us to Him. It is the love that Christ has for us that binds us to Him. God's love for us is an eternal love set upon us, never because of anything worthy in us or anything that we have achieved. Consequently, it was not gained by us, nor can it be lost by us. The love of God is not dependent on how we act in any given circumstance in life. It is an unending, undying love. That's why Scripture again and again speaks of God's love as being everlasting. Everlasting. He loves us to the fullest extent that it is possible for Him to love His creature. He cannot love any creature more than He loves His own. Man, this is astounding. And so the question Paul is posing, is there anything that can come into our lives and affect His love for us in such a way as to cause us to be separated from that love? And so the issue here is the power and the permanence of the love of Christ for those that He has bought with His own blood, brought into the family and the kingdom of His Father. And Paul asks, who or what shall separate us from Christ's love? And then, he begins to look around for an answer. And in verses 35 to 37, he gives us a sample list of experiences that that people might think uh, could separate us from Christ's love. And he mentions seven possibilities, and we'll look at them one at a time. Who shall separate us, or what shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation? yeah. So the first circumstance of life that someone might think is able to separate a Christian from the love of Christ is tribulation. And the idea of this word tribulation is circumstances that often press down on people forcefully and relentlessly. It's the idea of being placed under intense pressure. In Scripture, the word is perhaps most often used of external difficulties. But it also is used of emotional stress. And the idea here is probably that of severe uh, external adversity in general. The kind that is common to all men. The next word is distress. Shall distress. The Greek word translated distress refers to being strictly confined in a narrow, difficult place. It it speaks of being helplessly hemmed in by your circumstances. It's the idea of being in a place where we are continually confronted with internal pressures and and temptations that we cannot avoid. It's the stress of being inwardly squeezed and, and pressed with apparently no escape. And many of us know what that's like. So, can you be under external pressure and adversity, and internal pressure, and such apparently inescapable temptation that it it has the power to separate you from Christ's love? What about persecution? That's next. Nice. The Greek word for persecution contains the idea of being pursued by someone intent on doing you harm. It speaks of harm that is relentless. And this is suffering inflicted on us because of our relationship with Christ. And I highly doubt any of us here this morning have ever suffered outright persecution. But many Christians in other parts of the world endure it on a daily basis. And there are subtle persecutions here. And there will be outright persecution in this country as it becomes more and more hostile to biblical Christianity. And with regard to persecution, we can be sure of two things. Number one, persecution is a normal response to any straightforward, honest, to-the-point Christian witness or stand. And secondly, we will experience persecution to the extent that we confront the world with the claims of Christ. And it may be as subtle as being shunned. It may mean being passed over for some honor or promotion. It could be that believers uh, are going to be sued in court to silence our outspoken witness against some national sin and wickedness. You know, Jesus said in John 15, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. But then Jesus said in the next chapter in John 16, 33, In the world, you will have tribulation. So we can count on it. But he followed that up with, but be of good cheer or take heart because I've overcome the world. And the fact of the matter is, persecution has always been good for the church. History teaches us that it isn't persecution that the church has to fear, but rather the lack of it. I mean, historically, beginning in the book of Acts, the more the church was persecuted, the more bold and aggressive they became for the gospel. And God has always manifested His love and grace in the midst of persecution. I mean, Persecution may separate us from a more lucrative future in the world or a more attractive image or a more prestigious posi- position before the world. You know, persecution may separate us from our families and even result in death. But the question is, can it separate us from Christ's love? Next is famine. You know, not even having necessary food. Famine can result from drought and the failure of crops, from disasters such as earthquakes, fires, floods, uh, plagues of locusts or from war. Famine can also result from persecution. When Christians are discriminated against in employment and, and cannot afford to buy enough food to eat. Many believers in the world have, have been imprisoned for their faith and have gradually starved to death because of inadequate food. I mean, hunger is a terrible thing. But can this separate us from the love of Christ? What about nakedness? When most people today hear this word they usually associate it with nudity or sexual activity or pornography. It's not what this is referring to. In Paul's day it had to do more with extreme poverty. It meant that you were so impoverished you couldn't adequately clothe yourself. And it also suggests the idea of being vulnerable and, and unprotected. Nakedness. Next is danger. This refers to dangers of various types, though the focus here is on those which Christians are exposed to simply because they are Christians. I mean, just as in New Testament times, again, in many countries today, Christians are arrested, tried, and imprisoned. In others, they're attacked, beaten, and and even killed. The sword is next. It suggests being murdered rather than dying in military battle. So being murdered for your faith. I think it's important to note that Paul himself had experienced these things and many more. In fact, he writes about it in 2 Corinthians 11. Referring to certain Jewish leaders in their church who were boasting of their suffering for Christ. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 11 verses 23-28, to are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people. Danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, in other words, lacking adequate clothing. And apart from others' things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. So Paul writing here in in Romans chapter 8 wasn't writing from an ivory tower. This was not simply theory. He was writing from personal experience. And he himself had suffered these things and worse. And the sword is the only item on the list Paul had not yet personally experienced. But he would. Because as you know, he was eventually executed by being beheaded. So Paul is basically saying, this is my life. This is my life. And did these things separate him from the love of Christ? Well, not at all. Not at all. You know, contrary to a lot of popular preaching, Christians are not immune from the sufferings of life. In fact, we should expect it. But the fact of the matter is, living in this country, we've been living in a bubble. In fact, I like to say we've been living in Christian Disneyland. Because the rest of the world has not known the, the freedoms and the prosperity that we have enjoyed. No one. And consequently, uh, Christianity in, in, in this country, it is like, it's like being in a Christian Disneyland. But folks, things are about to get real. Things are about to get real. So again, contrary to a lot of popular preaching, it even has creeped into evangelical churches, solid Bible churches, where people think it's strange if they suffer. We're not immune from it. We should expect it. And Paul essentially says in verse 36, these things are supposed to happen. Look at verse 36. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. This is a quotation from Psalm 44.22 and it shows uh, that the difficulties listed in verse 35 happen to Christians. Believers are not exempt from sufferings or even from being killed. And we should not be surprised and we're called upon to endure suffering for the sake of Christ. I mean, Paul wrote to Timothy, 2 Timothy 3 indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will what? Be persecuted. The cost of real faithfulness to God has always been high. I mean, being a Christian could cost you your life. And saints down through the ages have endured all these things. These these are everyday experiences for believers in other places in the world. I mean, the freedom and peace and tolerance we've enjoyed in America, which, by the way, is coming to an end, is not the norm for the rest of the world. And it should drive us to a greater love and concern for the suffering and persecuted church. And the reason that Paul mentions so many terrible things is twofold. First of all, he wants us to know things like this happen to believers. It's not unusual. And secondly, he wants to make sure we understand that there is nothing so terrible, so horrible, that it could ever separate us from the love of Christ. Who or what shall separate us from the love of Christ? The answer is nothing. Absolutely nothing, and and no one can separate us from Christ's love. That's the point. And someone will ask, well, how can Paul say that? (laughs) Well, he can say it because God loves His own. And He loves us without variation and without end. His love is eternal. He loves infinitely, both in capacity and in time. And Jesus Christ is alive and is loving us now. And He is at the right hand of God and He is interceding for us, which means that He is seeing to it that His finished work of redemption does in fact save us, keep us, and bring us safely home to glory. I mean, His love is a moment-by-moment action by the omnipotent living Son of God to bring us to everlasting glory in His presence. And this omnipotent, effective, protecting love does not spare us from trials, tribulations, suffering, persecution, and tragedies in this life, but loved ones, it brings us safe into eternal glory with God. Even if we're killed, we're not separated from the love of Christ. And so the sum of the matter in verses 35 and 36 is this. Jesus is loving us, His people, with omnipotent, moment-by-moment love that doesn't always rescue us from calamity, but preserves us for everlasting glory in His presence, even through suffering and death. And that should absolutely fill us with awe and wonder and worship. I mean, this ought to just grip us and hold us and and fill our minds. And we should be reminding ourselves of this at the beginning of the day. You know, He loves me. And then again at at mid-morning, He loves me. And then at noon, He loves me. And then at mid-afternoon, He loves me. And then at dinner time, He loves me. And then before bed, He loves me. And we must pray about this. Pray that this sense of being loved by Christ would fill us and and overflow from us. As one man said, the roots of our life are firmly held by the depths of Christ's love. And the foundation of our life is firmly supported by the rock of Christ's love. We cannot be plucked up or blown over That is the point of Romans 8.35. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. And not only can we not be separated from the love that Christ has for us, but His love is so powerfully for us at all times that it turns every circumstance into triumph. That's why Paul says in verse 37, notice verse 37. No, no. And all these things, which things? All the things he's just referred to. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. You know, in contrast to the world and its power, Christians are weak and despised. You know, we are as, as a helpless flock of sheep. But this verse tells us that we're conquerors because we're loved by the Lord Jesus and have been made conquerors through him. In fact, the verse says we are more than conquerors. And the word for conqueror, uh, the, or the word for conquer is the Greek word from which we get our English word, Nike. And in the Greek text, it, it literally means hyper conquer or hyper conqueror. You know, to conquer as it were with success, despair. And what Paul is saying is that all believers are super conquerors, or as it's translated for us in the ESV and and the New King James, more than conquerors. So in all our trials, in all our persecutions, in all our temptations, tribulation, distress, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, in all of these, we don't just barely eke by. We are triumphant. We are victorious. Paul says we are super conquerors. Someone says, but how can that be? How can those who are despised and rejected, troubled, distressed, persecuted, exposed to famine and nakedness, danger and sword, be thought of as conquerors and super conquerors at that? How? Well, Paul writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit says that we are more than conquerors. And this is the Word of God. But some of us don't feel like conquerors, do we? Or am I the only one that ever feels like that? Sure, we believe it intellectually. But it has not worked out in our experience. You know, we feel that Paul didn't know what we have to go through. (laughs) Well, we need to understand that uh, being more than conquerors does not mean That we have complete victory in every circumstance in this life. I mean, I don't know about you, but I used to read this verse and get so condemned. Because I would think, what in the world is wrong with me? I'm not a conqueror. I don't have perfect victory in every circumstance. So evidently, I somehow fell through the cracks. Listen. We are more than conquerors, not because we have perfect victory in the face of every circumstance, but rather because God takes every circumstances, all things, good things, bad things, righteous things, and sinful things, and He does what with them? Verse 28, He works them together for our good, which primarily refers to our ultimate glory. And secondly, we're more than conquerors because our ultimate reward will far surpass whatever earthly and temporal loss we may suffer. But I mean, even the most terrible circumstance is to be viewed, as Paul said, a light momentary affliction which is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And so we're more than conquerors. Not because in every situation we have victory or we're always up and always filled with and walking in the Spirit. No, we're more than conquerors because God uses everything, even suffering and death, to bring about our good, our ultimate glory, and that will far surpass whatever earthly and temporal loss we may suffer. In that sense, we are more than conquerors. We are ultimately victorious in overcoming anything and anyone that might be thought of as separating us from Christ's love. And we do so, the verse says, through him who loved us. We are super overcomers entirely through the power of him who loved us so much that he gave his life for us that we might have life in him. When His love for us will never be broken, and His love for us will never let us go, He never lets go. He loves us all the way through. It is an unbreakable bond of love. You say, well, wait a minute. Haven't there been people who professed to know Christ who were involved Christians, but they couldn't take the pressure, and they they went away? They just walked away, abandoned the faith? Absolutely, there have been people that have done that. In the parable of the soils in Matthew 13, Jesus said, some seed fell on rocky ground. And this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet, we're told he has no root in himself. And so it endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on on account of the word, then immediately he falls away. I think 1 John 2.19 is one of the most important and I think helpful verses because that question is asked so much. And 1 John 2.19 says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Look, there are always going to be people who uh, hang around the church, People who look like Christians, act like Christians, talk like Christians, but disappear under pressure. Why? Because they're not of us. And the fact that they walked away is proof of that. When true Christians face things, trials, difficulties, tribulation and persecution, they don't abandon their salvation because it's just part of it. True believers persevere, and only true believers persevere, not because they're strong in and of themselves, but because they are being kept by the power of God. A believer's perseverance does not keep his salvation safe, but rather proves that his salvation is safe. And on the other hand, those who may profess Christ, but abandon the faith, they fail to persevere. And in doing so, they not only demonstrate their lack of courage, but much more importantly, they demonstrate their lack of genuine faith. Because you see, God keeps and protects even the most fearful person who truly belongs to Him. Even the weakest, most fearful saint who belongs to Him, God keeps them. We're not keeping ourselves safe. If we could lose our salvation, we would have already done so. On the other hand, even the bravest of those who are merely professing Christians will invariably fall away when the cost of being identified with Christ becomes too great. And that's one good thing about the persecution that's coming. It's going to purify the church. Because when it starts costing you and I something, I mean really costing us something, when they tell you, you you better teach this and not say this or you're going to lose your job, what are you going to do? Are you going to compromise your faith? When it starts costing you something, when it's going to cost you your job, what if it's going to cost you your home? What if it's going to cost the life of one of your children? What are you going to do? This is real, folks. This is real. And it's going to get very real. And when the persecution comes, it will purify the church. But that's okay. Because historically... A purified church, no matter how small it is, is powerful in the hands of God. As one man said, if we have been called to be a Christian, then there will be suffering. Therefore, within His plan, God has taken into consideration the fact that we will go through all of these things. And the commitment of His love toward us is woven through the plan that includes tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, and the sword. He's woven the commitment of his love through all of these hardships and circumstances of life. This is why Paul can say to us that in all of these things we are more than conquerors. And now as we come to verses 38 and 39, Paul closes with a beautiful summary really of what he's just said. Look at verses 38 and 39. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height or depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I mean, that says everything that could possibly be said. Paul answers the question he raised in verse 35 with absolute certainty that nothing can ever separate God's people from His love in Christ. I am sure, Paul said, and it means I have become and I remain convinced because the conviction he expresses is rational, settled, and unalterable. I mean, he has asked questions whether anything will separate us from Christ's love, and now he declares that nothing can, and so nothing will. For I am sure, he said, I am absolutely convinced beyond all doubt. This is a, a confident declaration of a Holy Spirit-inspired man. He's saying, I have a settled conclusion, and I am telling you this. Nothing can separate us. I mean, verses 38 and 39 list ten things that cannot separate us from the love of God in Christ. Eight of them in pairs. And death is first on the list. Why? Well, two reasons at least. Because Paul has just said in verse 36, we are being killed all the day long. And because death separates us from so much of what we know on earth. and So death is the most urgent threat. And so immediately he says, death cannot separate us from God's love. In fact, death does just the opposite, doesn't it? Death is merely a transition for us as believers because it ushers us into the very presence of Christ. Philippians 1.23, Paul said, I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. I mean, death means to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So it's not separation, loved ones. It's homecoming. Certainly it's separation from family and friends and, and the body and all of earth's pleasures. And that's why it may not look like the love of God. But Paul says it is the love of God. It's not as though we are loved by God up to the point of death and then loved again by God after death with a big separation from the love of God in death. (laughs) I mean, death, the experience of death is not a separation from the love of God. God loves us before death. He loves us in the act of dying. And He loves us after death. And all our losses here are part of being loved by God. And so hard as it feels, Paul wants us to know and experience the fact that death and all that it takes from us is not a lapse in the love of God. Death cannot separate us from the love of Christ. Well, what about life? Well, this doesn't seem like a hindrance at all. (laughs) How can life be something that separates us from the love of Christ? I mean, we think of life as something positive. But our present earthly life is filled with all kinds of spiritual dangers, isn't it? It's in this life that we face tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, dangerous sword, and the many other trials and temptations Paul could have mentioned. It's in this life, especially here in the United States, with all of our prosperity, all of our affluence, that is such a great spiritual danger. And Paul is saying there's no state of being, either death or life, in which we can be separated from the love of Christ. There's no sphere in which you could exist which would be outside the eternal love of Christ. Because we have eternal life in Christ, the threats during our present life are really empty, aren't they? What's the worst someone can do to us? Take our life. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. I mean, it's not that I relish the, the thought of dying. It's kind of like R.C. Sproul said, uh, I'm not, it's not death I'm afraid of, it's the process of dying that concerns me. When Christ died, He secured His own people in death and in life. Nothing in life and nothing in death will undo the triumph that Christ achieved in the cross and His resurrection. And so Paul says in Romans 14.9, For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that He might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. And His lordship over life and death is invincible. Life and death cannot separate us from the love of God. And and really, you can stop right there because if there's nothing in death that can separate you and nothing in life that can separate you, that's it, isn't it? Because you are either dead or alive, right? But Paul continues. He wants to drive his point home. Look at the next pair, verse 38. For I am sure that, that neither death nor life, nor, he says, angels nor rulers... Angels and rulers, and then a few words later he mentions powers. Neither angels nor rulers nor powers will separate us from the love of God. Angels probably refers to holy angels, and rulers and and powers would seem to refer to fallen angels, the demonic beings. And Paul's point is simply this, there are no cosmic supernatural powers, good or evil, that can separate us from the love of God. When the demonic powers were decisively defeated at the cross, Paul tells us in Colossians 2.15 that God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. When Christ rose, Ephesians 1.21 says that He was exalted far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And so even though demonic beings are on the loose, they cannot do ultimate harm to God's people, to God's elect. Satan and his host were dealt a fatal blow at the cross of Christ. His doom is sealed. And though he's still prowling about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour, and will continue to do so until the coming of Christ, Satan's authority and power have been checked. And his days are numbered. I mean, we're engaged in in spiritual war. But we have to remember the outcome has already been decided in our favor. We fight an enemy over whom we have complete authority and from whom we need fear nothing. I mean, we should certainly pay him a healthy respect. But we should not react towards him with fear. Why? Because God has disarmed the rulers and authorities. On the cross, Christ crushed the serpent's head. As Martin Luther wrote in his great hymn, The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure. Why? For lo, his doom is sure. There are no cosmic supernatural powers or beings who can separate us from God's love. As one man said, it must gall Satan badly to hear God say, You and your mighty hordes are helpless to take my loved ones. The next two pairs are Paul's way of saying that nothing in time and space can separate us from the love of God. First time, look what he says, nor things present nor things to come. So there's nothing here and now, there's nothing in the present age, in the present time, at the present moment, and there's nothing in any future time, at any any future age or any future moment, including the judgment of God that is coming upon the world that can separate us from God's love. The present-future pair covers our fear that though the present might be tolerable now, the future is going to be so horrible You that know, we're going to wonder if we're still going to be able to stand it. Or we might fear that the present is so bad that we're not going to make it to any future. And Paul's response is it will never be so bad now or at any time in the future that you will ever be separated from the love of God circumstances will never surprise God so that He has to go back on this promise. The future is absolutely His. He knows it. He has ordained it. He runs it. And if He says it won't separate us, guess what? It won't separate us. Right? And then verse 39, space, nor height. Nor depth. You say, what does that mean? That's just, that just covers everything. I mean, Paul's covering every possible base. The height, depth pair here in verse 39 covers our fear that there may be lurking in you know, some distant place far, far away, you know, some menacing power that would uh, surprise us and destroy our faith and separate us from the love of God. But Paul says, no, no. Nothing high nor low can separate us from the love of God. No matter how high you go up or how deep you go, you'll never find a power that can nullify the keeping power of God's love. The psalmist said in Psalm 139, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. In other words, nothing in the highest heaven and nothing in the deepest hell can ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. No state of being, no cosmic supernatural powers or beings, no dimension of time or eternity, not the present and not the future, not now and not ever, nothing high, nothing low, nothing, absolutely nothing can ever separate us from the love of God. And just in case someone says, except, Paul adds, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So to make sure that he hasn't missed anything, Paul added one more that is all-inclusive. Nor anything else in all creation Creation. That's, that's for all those people who would sit around uh, because they think they're so wise and smart and try to think up something. No created thing can separate us from the love of God. And you know what that means? That covers absolutely everything except God. That covers everything that is not God. Because our triune God is uncreated. And everyone else and everything else is created. And so Paul is saying, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, nothing, no thing, no person, nor anything in all creation, in all the universe, can separate us from the love of God. And you know what else that includes? That would include ourselves. You know, there are those who say the elect, you know, can't be snatched out of God's hand, but they can jump out. In other words, they say you can be elect, chosen by God, born again, justified, and in the end still perish. That, that's just silly. It's silly. And it's not based on the word of God. It's based on some man's system of theology that is in error. It's silliness. Because that is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches those whom he foreknew. That doesn't mean that he knew about something about them. For those whom It's people, those whom he foreknew. Foreknew doesn't just mean his omnipotent knowledge of the future. Adam knew his wife, and she what? Conceived. This knowing speaks of intimate, personal relationship. God foreknew his people. He had... uh, Uh, an intimate, loving relationship with them in eternity past before they were ever created. Those whom he foreknew, whom he set his love upon in eternity past, those he chose, Paul tells us, he predestined. And those he predestined, he called. And those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he glorified. And there are no weak links in that chain. Jesus will never lose a single believer. He will never lose a single believer from his knowing us in eternity past to our glorification in eternity future. Jesus said in John 10, 28, I give them eternal life. What does that mean? What does eternal life mean? It means eternal, doesn't it? Jesus is speaking of his own, and he said, I give them eternal life. And then he said, they will never, what? Perish. What does that mean? He's given them eternal life and they'll never perish, right? (laughs) It's exactly what it means. The nature of eternal life is that it's eternal. And if you have eternal life in Christ, you will never perish. And Jesus said, no one will snatch them out of my hand. He's not going to lose one of those who belongs to him. Otherwise, he will have failed in his mission. Because the good shepherd doesn't lose any of his sheep. You say that is the radical assurance of God's elect. But let me tell you what the assurance is not. The assurance is not that you can forsake the faith and live in sin and in the end go to heaven. Oh, no. No, that is not the assurance. The assurance is this. God keeps his elect from final apostasy and unbelief. The new covenant promise for all of God's people in Jeremiah thirty-two forty is this, I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them and I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. Listen, there may be many failings and stumblings, many wanderings and falls, but if you truly belong to Christ, you can expect His loving discipline and you can expect to be brought back because you will be brought to glory. And that is why Jude extolled the glory of Of him who is able to keep you from stumbling. And that means stumbling in the ultimate sense. Of falling away. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling. And to what? To present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Paul wrote to the Philippians, And I am sure, I am absolutely convinced of this, that he who began a good work in you will what? Bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So nothing, absolutely nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I mean, that love to us is in Christ. That's our position, loved ones. We are in Christ. We were in Adam, but now we are in Christ. Our sins have been atoned for. He paid the penalty. Our sins were laid on Him. He took the full wrath of God. Justice was satisfied. His righteousness is imputed to our account. And God sees us as perfectly righteous in Christ. And He sees us as perfectly righteous as Christ. And that's how God treats us because we are in Christ. And because we are in Christ Jesus our Lord, God can fully and eternally love us and that love is unbreakable. So there is absolutely nothing that can separate us from that love. You see, if we are Christians, it's not because we were so smart. We were so much smarter than everyone else. or We had it so much together uh, than everybody else. Not at all. If we are Christians, it's because God took hold of us. And if God has taken hold of us, nobody can make him let go. And that is why Paul said, because God is for us. Who can be against us? And so to those who love God and trust Christ and are called according to his purpose, Verse 28 says that all things will work for our good. Verse 30 says that our final glorification is secured. Verse 31, that no one can be successfully against us. Verse 32, God will supply everything we need, even when all seems lost. Verse 33, no one can make a charge, stick against us in the court of heaven, no matter who accuses us. Verse 34, no one can condemn us. And verse 35, no one and nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. mean, the point of this entire passage is our security. God wants His people. He wants us to experience deep, unshakable confidence that we are secure in His love. And that is so comforting. Because His love is the only love that we can be secure in. Because human love is so fickle and is based on, you know, who we are, what we are, our performance. But not God's love. No. No, we are secure in His love. It never changes. And the reason that Paul must stress this is because in real life we appear and we often feel so insecure. I mean, to use the words of verse 26, we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. This is always true for Christians someplace in the world. And when it's true, we can feel very insecure and we can feel very separated from God. And this will be true for all of us sometime in our lives. I mean, things will happen that that make us feel as if we're separated from the love of God. And that is why we can't operate on the basis of our feelings, but rather on the basis of what God says in his word. That's why this text is here. And that's why I'm preaching, and that's why you're here this morning. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, he's chosen you. You're his. You belong to him. You don't have to take my word for it. Read Ephesians. God chose us in Christ from before the foundation of the earth. And it doesn't say there or any place else that he did so based on uh, him knowing that we were going to choose him. Don't read something into the scripture that isn't there any place. If you're a believer in Christ, he chose you Before the foundations of the earth, He set His love on you in eternity past. In time, He saved you. You are His. You belong to Him. And verse 28 says that you love Him and are called according to His purpose. And this is His purpose, everlasting security. Verse 29 says that you are foreknown, that is, recognized with favor, love before time. You're predestined to be, what, like Christ? That's what we're predestined to, to be conformed into his image. We're called from death to life. We're justified once for all, counted righteous in Christ. And no one or nothing can reverse God's decree of justified. And then we're, we will be glorified. And these promises of uh, of inseparability are God's declaration that he will save his people and absolutely nothing can destroy them. And all these promises are yours if you have trusted in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. If you have personally trusted in Christ as your Lord and Savior, your only hope of salvation. There's no other way to heaven. No other way. There is one way. And that is through faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone. It's the acknowledging of your utter sinfulness in the sight of a holy God. I mean, God is holy and just and righteous He is our creator, therefore he has the right to tell us how we're to live and to relate to him. And he will also be our holy judge. And he has given us his word, he's given us uh, commands. And every single one of us, without exception, have broken his commands. Because you see, God's standard is 100% sinless perfection. In word, thought, deed, and motive. It's absolute, sinless perfection. So we have all sinned against a holy God. And the only just and right punishment for sinning against an infinitely holy God is infinite, eternal punishment. And that's where every person. It's where every man or woman is headed apart from a relationship with Christ. Uh, It's not going to happen like Phil Donahue said many years ago, I think it was in the 80s. Oh, you know, at the end, we're just all going to get there and God's going to say, oh, just come on in. Not going to happen. Apart from Christ, every man and woman is headed toward an eternal hell where they will pay the price of their sin against a holy God for eternity. That's the bad news, and unless you understand that, you will never appreciate the good news. And there is good news, and it's gloriously good. God is holy and just and righteous he is our creator and our eternal judge, but he is also loving and merciful and gracious and kind. And for no reason other than his great love, that's the only reason, it had nothing to do with us, because of his great love, he made a way by which man could have all of his sin forgiven and be brought into a right relationship With God, and that way is through His Son. You see, somebody has to pay the penalty for sin. The price for sin will be paid. And it had to be someone who was perfectly sinless. And so God provided the Lamb for sacrifice, He provided His Son, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Because God so loved the world of humanity. It's speaking about mankind. Because God so loved man. He sent his son into the world that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. And Jesus, willingly, voluntarily, because of his great love, stepped out of eternity into time. He humbled himself uh, in, in, in a condescension that we cannot begin to understand. He humbled himself, uh, stepped out of eternity into time, humbled himself, became a man. Beyond that, a servant. He was despised and rejected. He lived a perfect, sinless life for approximately 33 years. And then, because of crimes he was falsely accused of, he was sentenced to death on the Roman cross. He went to the cross, and there on the cross though he was wholly harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners, though he was perfectly without sin, God laid our sin upon Christ. He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God laid our sin on Christ, and then he punished Christ for our sin. And you could say it like this, Jesus lived the perfect sinless life that you and I could never live. And then he died the death that you and I deserve. He died in our place. That's why we refer to it as a substitutionary atoning sacrifice. He died in our place. God poured out his white, hot, furious wrath against sin upon his only son. And Jesus bore the wrath for our sin. And he died because the wages of sin is death. Jesus died. He gave his life. He was buried Then he gloriously arose three days later, was here for approximately 40 days, ascended back to heaven where he is today, seated at the right hand of the Father, ever making intercession for those who belong to him. And he is offering today to men and women and and boys and girls the opportunity to have their sins forgiven and to come into a relationship with him. But they have to appropriate that for themselves. What does that involve? Well, they have to turn to him. They have to have a change of mind. They have to recognize their sinfulness. Recognize they deserve nothing but hell. Turn to Christ. Cry out to him to save you. And the Bible says that everyone that calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So this morning, if, if, if you're here and you've never trusted in Christ alone for salvation, maybe you're one of those who just, you know, hangs out around the church You're, you know, a nice person, kind of righteous, you know, not really, but kind of, you know, you're just a nice person. You like Christians and, you, you know, coming to church makes you feel good. Or maybe you've been living a lie your whole life and you know it. If that's you, I would urge you this morning To humble yourself. Cast yourself upon the mercy and the grace of God and cry out to the Lord Jesus to save you and to forgive your sin. And he will. He will. He surely will. Next to the bare facts of salvation, the greatest lesson a Christian can learn is that nothing Absolutely nothing can ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. With this in mind, one commentator said, the world's values, entertainments, and sins are at odds with the believer's great calling and destiny. Yet all Christians can know that none of these things can triumph over them. Like a mountain climber ascending a dangerous precipice behind his guide, secured only by a rope, The Christian walks through life secured by the stout cord of God's love. Because the way is treacherous, any believer may often slip and fall, but a disciple of Jesus Christ is secure. Because every Christian is bound to God by a gracious, unchanging, eternal, and indestructible love. You know, Paul began Romans chapter 8, excuse me, he began Romans chapter 8 by saying, there is no condemnation in Christ. Sorry. He began by saying, there's no condemnation in Christ. That's how he began the chapter. But he closes the chapter by saying there's no separation from him. There's no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. And there's no separation from him. And there is no way anything in all the world, in all of creation, could change that once God has apprehended us for his glory. so, loved ones, as you leave here today, you know, in all your trials and troubles and darkness, I want you to remember what you are and and what you have. You have been loved with an everlasting love. You are loved with an everlasting love. You are supported by everlasting arms. You are recipients of everlasting life and heirs of an everlasting kingdom. And all of this is sealed and made sure by the blood of an everlasting covenant. Isn't that a wonderful truth? Let's stand and pray. Of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Chapel, Reading, Palisadro, we hope and pray this study you just heard will help you grow in the Word. If you have any remaining questions or comments, please call us at 530 547 4400. That's 530 547 4400. Or write to us at PO Box 837, Palisadro, California 96073. You can also email us through the website at ccredding.com. Thank you for listening.